a bunch of people come to me and say like, I'm going to work in corporate for five years and then start a company when I have experience. And I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because there's no directness between being a corporate slave and being a startup person. everyone and welcome back to Beyond Bites season three. Today we have AJ with us. He is the co-founder and CEO of Entry Level and we also have Travis who is the new podcast director this semester. Thank you guys so much for coming on and we are very excited for today's episode. I think to get started we're gonna provide a brief introduction of all of us for all the new listeners out there. My name is Ju Sheng. I am a second year Bachelor of Commerce student majoring in finance and economics. And this semester, I am a podcast officer in Business One. And I'll pass it on to Travis. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Travis. I am a fifth year engine law student. And what I hope to deliver to you this semester is some of the most interesting startup podcasts you've seen. We're going big with our guests, big with the topics that we're going to discuss and give you a big insight of everything in the startup world. And I guess uh, I can introduce myself, AJ, co-founder and CEO of, I guess, founder and CEO of Entry Level, um, 10th year student of building startups, I guess, like, you know, still figuring things out. Don't know exactly where I'm going, but build a couple of different things. And I guess my failures get bigger and bigger each year. So, you know, that has to count for something, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. AJ, to get started, can you give us a brief introduction of entry level as well for listeners out there who are not too sure what entry level is? Yeah, so entry level is a company that does asynchronous cohort-based education, which is just a fancy term I wanted to put out there just because we have generative AI and we have crypto and Web3. And I was like, damn, I want a cool term for like what we do because it just sounds kind of lame when I say we do education. Um, but what we figured out is how to scale cohort-based education. So um, typically you have like, you know, these self-serve educational courses like Udemy, Coursera, um, and the completion rates are pretty low, but they're pretty cheap and accessible. And on the other side, you have the General Assembly, Lambda schools, and like these boot camp style education. So it just costs a lot of money, but you get higher completion rates. And so we wanted to figure out what was in between. So we do automated cohorts in the sense that like, People join our courses, we team you up with 29 other people, you work together to get through the courses. Um, and through that, our completion rates are about 32% annualized. So, you know, it's about 10, 10 to 20 times higher than typical MOOCs. And uh, the price is obviously a fraction of what you would pay for a typical bootcamp. So yeah, that's, that's sort of the solution that we've come up with that we think is fairly unique and is a bit different to what the other offerings are out there. If I'm right, the commitment bond is uh, before the students start the course, they pay in advance. And if they successfully complete the course, they get their money back. So that kind of acts like a motivation for us to finish the course, but how much of that actually contributes to the profit of the company? Yeah, at the moment, all of the money, all of our revenue comes from that commitment bond. The way it works is if you finish the course, you can take your money back or uh, we have a bunch of premium perks that we provide you with. So um, if you decide to take your money back, we give you a free certificate and you lose access to the content. If you decide to let us keep the money, you get a premium certificate, some uh, a generated reference setter and a couple of other perks. And you also get to keep the content in perpetuity. Um, so about, you know, 75% plus uh, in some countries, it's 90% plus of people let us keep their money at the end of the course. 
Um, and the, the thinking around that is like, you know, you've given us money and we have six weeks to make you fall in love with us. And by the end of it, if you have fallen in love, then, you know, you let us keep the money. And if you haven't, then no hard feelings. You can walk away and we just treat that as a cost of doing business. Um, and like, I've always thought about like offers, like you kind of want your offer to be too good to be true uh, when people sign up. So I, I was thinking that when I first designed this entire thing, it was like, how do I get people to go to the website and be like, holy shit, is this real? Like, this sounds a bit too, you know, good to be true. And then your job is to convince them that you are trustworthy and you, it is true. And like, that's when you add validation testimonials. And um, we're thinking about adding a section of like how much money we've actually returned to students, something like that. And in 2022, we returned over 200,000 back to students or something like that, just to show people that we are doing it. Um, but it definitely was a weird model to start with because we were just sitting there refunding Stripe transactions and then Stripe was like, what the hell is going on? Like, why is, is there so much money flying in and out? And you know, we had to explain it and figure out the best way to go forward. So yeah, it's definitely been a, there's been pros and cons to that model for sure. So our understanding of the different certificates is the normal one just says you've completed the course, but premium, you've got the signature from you, from whoever ran the course and the letter of referral. How much more valuable are those perks compared to that standard certificate when they're looking for work? Yeah, the, the certificate thing is just symbolic, to be honest. Like, I don't think like an employer is really going to be like, oh, this one looks prettier. And this one looks white. They're like, they're not even looking at it, right? They're just looking at a resume and they're like scanning for a couple of lines and they're not looking at your certificates at all. So I don't really think it matters that much. What I do think matters from a student perspective is you put six weeks of hard work into it. And then to be honest, we give you a pretty plain looking certificate for free. It's just like your name and it's like a white background and you're kind of like, uh, this doesn't reflect all the work that I put in. And then you see this like really nice looking one with badges and the signatures and colors all around. And it's just like, it's more of a commemorative thing, to be honest, if anything else. Um, and it is their choice at the end of the day, but that's how we think thought about it psychologically as opposed to, you know, premium certificate is going to help you a lot more with employment. The perks that we have added is things like a resume kit, cover letter kit, job search kit, like those, those sort of things to help you a little bit. Um, a generated reference letter, which it's up to you if you use that or not. I, I think the biggest takeaway for most students is that portfolio aspect of things. All our course, courses are built around portfolios because um, as an employer, I don't really care about your resume, especially at an entry level stage. I want to see what you can do. So if you send me a product management portfolio where you've done customer interviews and you've created different features or you've written up PRDs, product requirement documents, and you can show me, you can do that kind of stuff that's more valuable. So all our courses are really built around creating portfolios. That's like the major aspect of things. Um, yeah, I guess on the upsell perks, you know, we may change them over time as we see different things to optimize that rate. And um, there are definitely countries where the upsell rates are a little bit lower. There are definitely courses where the upsell rates are a little bit lower. Um, and that's probably because, you know, potentially for venture capital, a certificate doesn't really matter that much. Like they're not as interested. Um, also there's like no jobs in venture capital in Australia, like it's like what five, like every year or something. So, um, it really depends. So I think we'll be optimizing those things over the year. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause one of the questions we had was also, how would you gain trust from the employers or the companies themselves that the skills, um, these students learn are actually like helpful. 
but yeah, what you said regarding the portfolio really makes sense. Except for the portfolios, are there any other ways that would improve the credibility of the course when it comes to job applications? Not really. Like, let's be frank here. Like, all the courses kind of teach you similar things. Like, the education is kind of superfluous at this point. I think what's more important is how you demonstrate that knowledge in terms of, like, directness, right? Education comes to directness. Like, a bunch of people come to me and say, like, I'm going to work in corporate for five years and start a company when I have experience. And I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because there's no directness between being a corporate slave and, and being a startup person. Um, not that there's anything wrong with, with going the corporate route, by the way. They're just different things, right? Like, um, you're like building different skill sets and you're building different muscles. And I think, um, you know, in a corporate, you build systems and they're very good at scaling things, right? Whereas startups, you're not really scaling things as fast. You're not really thinking about risk mitigation and things like that. You just, you're just launching stuff, right? Whereas a corporate is really good at like having safeguards and rails to make sure things succeed and are systematic about it. And those are just different skill sets. So my point is here, comes down to directness of skill sets. The system we've created allows you to have way more directness with your learning and also the accountability to actually finish the course. So that's like realistically the main innovations we've sort of created. Um, and, and there are some things that we teach that we think are very different to other courses out there, but realistically, those things are really hard to keep under wraps. Like what's stopping someone from just like looking at a course and then teaching it a different way. It's like not, you know, copyright is kind of difficult in those circumstances because knowledge is not really something you can like, you know, be like, we created this, you can't do this either. So um, it's really hard. And we've seen so many copycats pop up as well. Like can't really do much about that. So how do you, if the value that then isn't the certificate, but the education that's provided, how do you then get the um, curriculum and the teachers and the course and the style of tests to be as optimized as possible? Because we saw that some of your t uh, teachers are people who work at like Amazon and things. How do you then give them that training to then pass on their knowledge more so as a teacher and give that tangible value to the students? Yeah, I think that's been hit and miss. We've definitely hired instructors that weren't great teachers, but they were like had the academic, like the background in um, a good company. So for the most part, we've actually just been more selective of who we allow to be a teacher. So just because you have the credentials doesn't mean you can automatically become one. So we just pick and choose. So I think our funnel is a little bit more um, selective in a sense. Um, and then from there, like, you know, we build a lot of the courses in-house. So in actuality, like it's very, it can be anywhere from 40% of the work is done by us to like 75% of the work is done by us. So we have an internal learning design team that thinks about learning design, that thinks about the best ways to communicate knowledge and things like that. And so like, we're really like, that, that's why we don't scale up the number of courses really quickly. Like we just build them slowly and figure out the best ways to do it and then launch. So realistically we're building anywhere from eight to 10 courses a year. Uh, we're not scaling to like 50, 100 and just like letting anyone in, which not to name names, but there are other companies that just like, you know, open up the marketplace and that can become a little bit messy. Um, there are companies that got there first and that's fine, but they're now new companies popping up, adopting a marketplace model, which I don't think is the right approach in 2023, if you're a new company. 
Speaking more broadly, do you think that your company and companies like it that are more focused on more real life and useful skills are kind of becoming more the future of education? Because something that I've seen is what we do at uni sucks. Like whenever you do a commerce job, you will see everyone there tell you, oh yeah, everything you learned at uni, you're going to use like 5% of it. Here's the actual skills or the same is with law and things like that. So do you think that this kind of learning and these kind of qualifications are going to become much bigger and things as that disconnect kind of exists? Or do you think unis are going to start trying to accommodate for the things they're missing out on? Yeah, so I, I think um, the reason I created this company and the way I was thinking about education in the first place is that like right now, universities don't have the right information that they're passing on to students. Like they're not, there's no, there's low directness um, to the workforce. So you're graduating with a skill set that's outdated pretty quickly. Um, and by the time they change, like it's too slow to really adapt to what's happening in the workforce, right? Like if you think about something like blockchain, the career landscape for that changed really quickly over 14 months when things first started pumping off, like in uh, 2017 era, like you know, the number of blockchain engineering jobs popped off and then the salary started inflating really exponentially. And so I remember we were hiring talent and it just kept increasing and increasing and increasing. We're like, oh my God. And you have these engineers that are just bouncing between companies going from 120K, 140K, 160. And then like, I swear by the end of them, some of them, some of them were like on a half a million. Um, and they had like two years experience in blockchain. And I was just like, this is the most ridiculous space. Um, but it just shows the inefficiencies of our education systems to pump out the people that we need for the workforce, right? However, the issue with the current education outside of university is the fact that it's all out there. Like if you want to learn something, if you want to learn web development, you could do that tomorrow. What you lack is accountability. And I think universities have a really good accountability system. For some reason, like when you go through this course, you have to pass and like there's all the stress and you have the time to focus on it too because the scholarship's available to you. Um, for some reason, your parents are cooler with you just like doing university and them supporting you a little bit. Like obviously people, some, some of them have to support themselves, but like the point is they give you the space, time and accountability to like succeed in like completing the course, right? So I think those things have done really well and the community aspect as well, like the parts around the educational curriculum and so I don't think courses outside of university have done a good enough job of like building those systems out. And that's sort of what I came into this thinking, like we need to focus on those aspects of things. I think, I think content isn't that defensible, but if you can build the systems that emulate a university experience in some capacity or take some of the learnings from that and apply it to these like online courses, then you can build something really interesting. So um, I think there's pros and cons is, is the point. I really like the accountability point because uni does keep us very, very accountable. Like this morning, somehow I got up at eight to go to a 9am lecture. And during the holidays, it was, I could not get up at eight ever. Yeah, they do, they do a really good job of it somehow. So, you know, we're going to take those learnings and try to apply it. And then that's, that's partially why I thought the financial incentive model could be interesting. Like if you have dollars hanging in limbo that you could potentially lose, you know, that's a really interesting incentive model. Um, there's, there's things you can play with. There's the community-based uh, accountability too. Like when you start building friendships within the cohort and like, you know, keep each other accountable. And we're seeing that in our cohorts already, right? Like, you know, we have anywhere from a thousand to about 12,000 people per month go through an entry-level course. And 
you just naturally start seeing communities form within these sub subgroups and like people building friendships, they're hopping on Zoom calls. There was a team last um, last cohort that was just really intense. They did a Zoom call every night to finish the course. And I thought that was a bit excessive. I joined one of them. I tried to join in secret, but they figured out who I was. Um, mm. But it's interesting just to see these community aspects of things and those those continuing after the course as well. I think we're going to move on to kind of the challenges you face scaling up entry level now that we learned a bit more about what entry level is as a company. Um, I guess we're just interested to know the difficulties that you faced as well as the scale up process of entry level as well. Yeah, I think the biggest difficulty for us and the thing that keeps me up at night is that like cost of acquisition is rising. And realistically, I think the biggest barrier for us is like, can we acquire customers as a reasonable price to make this all work, right? Because our operating margin, like, and, and the cost of run programs is pretty negligible for us. Like it's, it's fairly small, like we can scale pretty well with this community-based model and then potentially with AI, even better scale, right? Um, and so it just comes down to like, how much does it actually cost us to acquire a customer in this, like in these different markets? And can we make the unit economics work? Um, because what you're seeing is there are a lot of businesses across the world where like, you know, marketing spend or the, the CAC is basically 30 to 50% of their costs. Right. And so your margins start getting eaten up by just these really massive marketing budgets. Um, and education itself is just a very like red ocean space, right? Like people are elbow fighting, like for, for market share. And so it's uh that's that's a really tricky one and that's something that we've definitely been challenged on in the last you know six to 12 months um you know things were going really well and then you know facebook changes something or google ads change something and then we have to adapt really quickly and then we have to change that and um yeah that's something we're trying to figure out at the moment uh you know what is the right pricing model and what is the right acquisition channel for various countries um, I also think we scaled to too many countries too quickly, not on purpose. We just, you know, we were global day one. And so I think that that meant that was quite tricky. And the last piece would be the fact that like, if you think about product market fit, every course that we launch is like a new product essentially. And then every country we launch in is a new market. And so if you think about the combinations of countries and courses we have, it's just like, we now have 25 to 30 uh or even more than that like combinations to think of right <laughs> we have to think about product market fit in all those different contexts and so um that's something that's been challenging to figure out the right way to do it like that that makes our business more complex than something like say data camp that's like focused on you know people learning data science right it's a very you know straight edge like you know unique proposition that's just for that and so yeah i wondered what if like we made the right call there. Now we're already here. So um, I don't think we'll regress back, but it has made it challenging over the last year or so. What are the countries uh, that you've expanded to and how is it different from Australia? Yeah, so Australia is a pretty terrible market in general, just for everything, because it's a tiny population, massive land size, and like people are just spread out. And so it's just like not a great market unless you're doing gambling, which like, amazing, amazing market for gambling because Australians love to gamble. Um, and so like, if you're trying to build a business, you're usually looking at elsewhere, like into other countries. And so Singapore's one, India's one, 
US is one, and then Nigeria has also been a really big market for us as well. Um, so we're currently in the process of like setting it. We have a local entity there now in Nigeria, and we're setting up bank accounts and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I'm sure you can imagine as an Australian guy trying to set up a Nigerian bank account, it is the most painful thing in the world to do. Uh, actually, that's an overstatement. There are definitely more painful things in the world, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was tough. Um, and I think I'm the only one since 2006 to do it. So like, you know, that's, that's something, you know, first non-Nigerian Australian to ever set up a Nigerian bank account. It's like, you know, maybe I'll change that to my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask a question on yourself being a generalist versus a specialist. I think there are a lot of um, pressure on university students, especially nowadays with within their course and in general, just to specialize in a certain industry. And I know for myself, especially, and a lot of people out there that they kind of just want to know and learn a little bit about everything rather than delving too deep into a certain industry yet. Why do you call yourself a generalist and what are your views on these societal pressures to specialize? Yeah, so there's a really good book by David Epstein called Range, which I would definitely recommend, which talks about like specialists versus generalists. Um, and I think like one thing you're going to notice that if you specialize, you're probably going to do better than your peers earlier on. Um, mm-hmm. So in your 20s, like the specialist is just going to do better. They'll, they'll progress through the ranks faster, they'll get paid more and all that kind of stuff. And so it really depends what you're trying to optimize for. If you want to get as much money as possible as a career, then you should specialize. You could probably do better. Um, However, over time, what you find is that generalists will have more options available to them, be more robust against change, and then be able to progress further. Uh, Like if you think about a CEO skill set, like it's not like you have a T-shaped CEO, really, like you're you're kind of across different things anyway. Um, Whereas if you want to become the world's best SEO marketer that's possible like you could you could really specialize and become that person and make a lot of money that way so I I think there's like there's different ways to do it for different people and it really depends Uh, but I think the overall thing is that like by being a generalist you're more robust to change and that's something that I like but it's like a long-term game as opposed to this short-term optimization so um, you have to determine what you're trying to do I guess with your career yeah definitely and if you are a generalist, how are you going to get ahead of the specialist in the short term in order to achieve that long-term goal, though? Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't. Like, I didn't get ahead. I was definitely behind my peers when it came to, like, uh, pay rises and things like that. And that's that's something I just had to accept. And that's something that was difficult at the time. Like, you know, early 20s is something that uh, you know, I couldn't progress as fast just because like they had niche skill sets, right? And then people are willing to pay higher for those niche skill sets. And I didn't particularly know where I even fit in a company. Like, should I be a product manager? Should I be a growth person? Should I be ops? Like, I didn't really know where I fit. Um, and so like, that's that's sort of why I pursued startups because like in a startup, you know, you're sort of rewarded for having a more generous skill set and being able to like manage different things. And um it also lends itself really well to like C-level positions and stuff like that because you, you can't be T-shaped in those positions for the most part. So um, yeah, you, you just find that you catch up later in life. 
when you start looking for these like management positions and going a bit further ahead. Yeah. But isn't it also just so much more fun, right? Like I, I get I can get bored of things in like a few weeks or something. I, I find it really hard to just commit to that hard grind set and get really engrossed and passionate. And some people can, and that I think that's why they specialize. But I think at least for me, generalizing is awesome because then I get to try everything. I get to have fun doing new things. And eventually you'll find that thing that like hits you. Like uh, like the same with our audience. We're still like young in our 20s where a lot of people, they're still worrying about like, I've committed to this uni degree and I'm going to be stuck there for ages and specialize in that. Like, no, generalize, have fun. Find what you want to do first before you specialize. Yeah, I think one of the big things is people specialize too early without even trying other stuff. And that's, mm. you know, counterintuitive because then you're like 20 years into this like specialization. You're like, damn, I hate this. This sucks. Like, I wish I would try something a bit more. And then at that point, like you've tunnel visioned and like you've sort of gone too far and now it's like a bit late to switch. And so like, I think there should be a period of time where you do be a generalist just to discover things and then figure out where you want to specialize. Um, it also doesn't mean that you don't, learn skills deeply right like you can still be specialized for periods of time uh you know you could focus three months on this and three months on that and like you know there's still ways to do it um just because you're not level 90 in it doesn't mean you can't be level 45 and like you know build a lot you know, like your stat sheet a little bit more broadly um yeah i, I think those things are really important and yeah it, it definitely is more fun from that perspective like i i also get bored of things really quickly um and, and the last thing I'll say is like, there is this point where you start building all these like skill sets that aren't super related, but then the Venn diagram starts intersecting really well. And then you like become world-class at this like very niche thing, just because like, oh, I have a skill set in physics and math, and then I have skill set in product management and I have skill set in growth. Actually the intersection between that is like, I'm really good at talking to CTOs of really technical deep tech companies and then try to help them with their product strategy or their growth strategy. Um, so not many people understand science and business and when you can do both pretty well, then like suddenly people are calling you for these really interesting things. Like, you know, can you explain quantum computing to this mining company? And then it's like, yeah, sure. I can do that. Just because if they call an actual PhD to come in, there'd be way too confusing for them so like I can communicate those things I can bridge that gap and so um, those are some of the like pockets of like world-classness that I've found like you know throughout my career essentially you think that optimization process of going everyone's being really stupid about how they do things let me find a really quick fast solution that's going to work is that why startups was kind of like your space and where you've kind of done really well in or are there other things that you think that you have that are making you just like really well in this landscape okay so i guess to put it in perspective i haven't done well in startups yet like you know i'm still still need a chip on the board which is like an exit or an ipo or something so from an entrepreneurship perspective i'm still playing the game i haven't won yet um or i haven't got a, like a point yet so i'm still mm. still working towards it so it's hard for me to say from the perspective of like I've done well and like, you know, this has worked and this is how you should build companies. But like, I haven't got that experience to really say that. So that that's what I'm caveating, caveating before I say any of this stuff. But I, I do think there's an element of like, uh, you know, the feedback I received is definitely like the analytical approach and data driven approach to startups, I think is very beneficial. Like 
you know, I'm A-B testing constantly. I'm trying to launch five or six different things and seeing which one works and then doubling down on thing that works. Entry level, when we first launched, it was like six different things. And then it just so happened that entry level was the one that launched properly. So the, the company was actually called Every After. And then we launched like five or six different ideas. One was virtual coaching. Another was like no code for HR managers and like all this different stuff. They got various levels of success. You know, some got a couple of thousand dollars in sales. Another one got like a couple of hundred dollars of MRR and like various things. And then entry level, like 30,000 signups. So we're like, okay, there's demand here. We're less sure about how to make money from it, but I think there's something really powerful in what we're doing here. So let's double down on this one. So um, there's always like a method to the madness in a sense, right? And I think that's a bit like the, the scientific approach to startups essentially is the way I like to think about it. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And besides founding entry level, did you have any prior founding experiences and how did those go if you have? Yeah, um, I started a bunch of companies, maybe six or eight different companies. Like obviously most of them failed, right? Which is why I don't necessarily talk about them uh, like as if they're success stories, but like they failed at different levels. Like, you know, some of them were venture backed some of them, we had thousands of customers, you know, various different things. And so I definitely learned a lot. Um, so I think if I was to go off them one by one, like I had a, you know, an ed tech company was the first one. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a nonprofit called Real Skills. Um, and then I did a beer company for a bit. I was backed by Lion, um, which is the beverage company. So that was fun. Didn't really pan out the way I thought it was. It was like customized beers where you can drag and drop the ingredients and we brew it for them and send it to your house. Yeah. I uh, did a marketing agency or web development agency for a bit as well, which you know did decently well. Um, and then uh, went off to Singapore and sort of ran an international trade company with um, a couple of co-founders who are a lot more experienced than myself. So um, I was sort of co-founder by, by virtue of sort of um, doing a lot of the work, but they were a lot more experienced than myself. So they had the lion's share and I got a smaller chunk of it. Um, but it was a really good experience because I spent three years running that company. Um, and, you know, we scaled to like dozens of people. And so like, that was a good experience for me to get my management chops and like product management chops. Um, and aside from that, just like really quick e-commerce startups that have just popped up and then, you know, rattled down. So like during the Pokemon boom in like 2021, started importing stuff from Japan, flipping it on Facebook marketplace. And I was making like 10, 20 grand a month doing that for like, couple of months so like there'll just be these really quick wins that I'll do just because like it's fun like I enjoy the I enjoy arbitrage like in some capacity so I, I did that across like the last 10 years or so just you know anime t-shirts and um I don't know why it's only the the weeb stuff that's coming to my brain right now but <laughs> like um maybe, maybe that's my niche but like there's other stuff as well that like e-commerce stuff that I was trying like mobile phone cases and like all kinds of stuff and you know Sometimes I didn't make money for three months and then I'll make a bunch of money and then I'll just fund the next nine months and then, you know, go do something else. And so it was like a money in money out sort of cycle of just like trying stuff. But like, you know, I was, I was optimizing for learning and optimizing for um, trying different things as, as fast as possible. I think what's cool about you is you've gone through everything kind of in the start. You've tried and tested things. You've done the investor side. You've done like, the things that are more interesting, like the Pokemon NFTs and things like that. What would be, sorry, personal bias for Pokemon? 
what would be your number one advice to our audience just uni kids some doing commerce some not that are just interested in startups out of all that wealth of knowledge what's the one thing you tell them um one of the things i like to do is i think about like you know if i want to make a million dollars in a year i then shorten the time frame as much as possible and so like i'll set the goals of like okay i want to find a job in a year. I want to start a company in a year. I don't want to work for my boss anymore in a year. Like whatever these goals are, you write them down. Then you say like, what can I do in the next month to make that happen? You write that down. You say, what can I do in the next day to make that happen? And then you write down what I can do in the next hour to make that happen. And so really interesting stuff happens in that period of time when you do that brainstorming and so that time constraint. Um, and so like, that's an exercise I'd love to do. Like I'll write down like you know, entry level, I want to, you know, break even this year. And then I write down like, you know, what am I going to do this month, this day? Like, who can I call right now to make this happen? Like who would unlock the most amount of value to move this needle in some way? Um, and so I was doing the exercise this morning and, you know, what I had to do is just call the banker in Nigeria and, you know, make it move faster. That was basically it. <laughs> like that was the, the one thing I could do today to really unlock things venture level. And so I did that, got some forms, started filling it out. And so like, that prioritization can become really powerful once you really start thinking about like time constraints, because, you know, if you think about the concept of like, I have to make a million dollars and I have one hour to do it. Like <laughs> you have to be really brutal on your prioritization to make that happen. Um, so yeah, that, that'd be my sort of advice. It's like push down the time frames as much as possible so you can get more experiments out of your, your time. University is such a good time because like, you can get away with being a student. Like you can just be like, I'm a student and that's cool. Whereas like the societal pressure changes over time, where it's just like, you know, you're, you're 30 something and you're, you're kind of doing nothing. Like it's a bit harder to get away with at least, you know, Asian parents and you know that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, that would be sort of my advice. Yeah. I think that's actually very, very helpful for uni students as well, because a lot of us have a lot going on, whether it's part-time job or just uni work or side projects, side hustles, and then really prioritizing based on importance rather than kind of just doing whatever's the easiest to procrastinate because that, that's a habit that I find myself falling into quite a lot. Um, yeah, but thank you so much, AJ, for your advice, your wealth of knowledge and your time today. We have really, really enjoyed talking to you and we've learned so much from our conversation. So thank you so much for coming on the episode. No worries. Thanks for having me. So that wraps up our episode for today. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week.